God. So great opportunity for us. All right, if you have your Bibles today, go ahead and in the story, turn to page 250 if you've got a story Bible. If you've got a standard Bible today, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 or the story, page 250, okay? If you're following the arc of the story, for almost 70 years now, there are going to be no descendants, almost no descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living in the promised land. The people of God have been deported to Babylon. But we're going to see that God can prove himself. He can make himself public even when he's not in the Holy Land with his people. Perhaps you've heard it said before. Perhaps somebody said to you, well, there's only two things we don't talk about at the dinner table, religion and politics. How many of you have heard that statement before, right? You hear it. Some, people, some of you use it, and there's a reason for that. Because when people start talking religion and politics, almost always someone starts preaching. And people don't like to be preached at. You say, I know that, but I'm here anyways. Now listen, there's a difference. There's a difference. Because you are mentally and physically assenting to the idea that you will come and listen to me speak this morning. And there's also this sort of fourth wall that's going on. So it's not like I'm speaking directly at you. I'm speaking to a whole congregation. It's a different exercise. But when you're sitting at the dining room table and all of a sudden somebody gets preachy, people don't want to hear it because they're preaching at them. And it might not be the right opportunity. They might not have mentally and physically assented to the idea that they're going to get preached at. Now, here's the interesting thing about that when people say, well, we're not supposed to talk about religion or politics at the table. We, we serve a God who needs to be made public. And we serve a God who, who needs to, or, or, or who desires to make himself known to the world around us. But we're also saying, and we're also recognizing, that not everybody is going to give us permission to preach at them. But God can use other ways to point people to himself. He always likes to use us human beings. It's, it's part of his plan. It's part of the redemption of humanity, that he loves to use people to tell his story. And today in the book of Daniel, we're going to see three different stories where God's people point to him, and he is publicly made known, but the men of God in these stories, they aren't preachers. They don't need to preach to make God known. God has other methods. Is preaching a method to make God known? You bet. But the majority of us are not preachers, but there's some great stories today that can tell us how to make God known even without preaching. Three of them, in fact, that I want to share with you today. There were four men who had been deported from Israel, or more specifically Judah, to Babylon. Their names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Four men who were from Israel who were brought into the academy of Nebuchadnezzar. And if they excelled in the academy of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, they would become advisors to the king. They are given every opportunity for great things to happen in their lives, but as they come into the service of the king in his royal academy, something happens that is not so grand. You see, they're served the same food that the king has served, and the king has always served meat and wine that has been sacrificed to idols. That's going to create a problem, and let's read about the first way that they can point to God. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, or the story, page 250. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. 
Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel, undeterred, then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat, water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now skip down to verse 18 and look at the payoff. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented these four to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service and we find out in chapter 3 they even became governors in the land. But look at the front end of this story. This is very interesting. These guys choose to sacrifice on behalf of their God. And interestingly enough, it's only it says Daniel who was convicted about this, but somehow these other three get pulled into the plot. Did you notice this? I sort of had this picture of Hananiah like cutting into a T-bone steak and Daniel going, dude, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going veggie. I mean, I, I can sort of see this moment where Daniel's like the conscience for all four of them, right? Going, hey, we can't do this. That food's been sacrificed to idols. It's very clear to us from the covenant that we made with God that we are not allowed to go ahead and partake of that food. So let's not do it. Let's go ahead and go vegetarian. Now, many people have read this and decided to write books on it, insisting that we all need to become vegetarians. I'm not going to go there today. But I will say, whatever your persuasion, whether you consider yourself vegan or vegetarian or keto or frito, the point here is that these guys make a sacrifice on behalf of their God. Remember last time we said that the problem with the Israelites is that they were muddying up the name of God? They were throwing dirt on the window through which people were to see God? Well, well, these four aren't going to throw any dirt on the name of God. God said you can't eat that meat, you can't drink those drinks sacrificed to idols, and so they don't, and they put God to the test. They said, we'll point to God through our sacrifice. They said, look at us after 10 days and see if we look healthy and hale. And they did. So on the front end is a major sacrifice, and for those of us who love meat, this is a major sacrifice. But look at how the sacrifice pays off. God knows that through their sacrifice that they are serious about him. And he can do amazing things with people who will sacrifice on the front end. You know, this is who Jesus was. Jesus, it says in Philippians chapter 2, left all the prerogatives of heaven. He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. He went from being in the splendor of heaven to being born, which I can't imagine is a pleasant experience, and then lived as a carpenter's son for 30 years of his life, only to be betrayed and eventually die. Jesus sacrificed a ton on the front end, and the Bible says, because he was looking forward to the joy that was set before him, and that joy is you. That joy is me. A major sacrifice on behalf of God can do amazing things. 
At the highlight of Jesus' ministry, and we celebrated this about five weeks ago, Palm Sunday, Jesus marches into Jerusalem with a huge throng of people. They are super excited. They are shouting Hosanna to the son of David. They're ready to make Jesus king. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 12? Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, he remains alone. But if he dies, he'll produce many times over. See, Jesus recognized that a sacrifice on the front end in God's economy actually pays great dividends on the back end. And the dividends on the back end that they guys, these guys couldn't have known is that they would be given power and influence in the kingdom beyond any they could have ever imagined. There's tons of sacrifice going on even this morning in this very building, and it's in the same vein. Naturally, you didn't become a vegan or a vegetarian this morning, but, but there are people who on their one day off a week, 50 weeks a year, show up here early to teach our kids Sunday school, believing that the joy set before him and the sacrifice that they make to God will be worth it in the end. The band who played this music this morning, they practiced their music all week. They came in here at 8.30 and practiced late at night, and then they came in here early on one of their days off today so that they could lead you into the presence of the Lord. Sacrifice on the front end, but expectation on the back end that God's going to do some amazing things. We have all types of stories about this. There's people sitting around here this morning that give tithes and offerings. They believe that the Bible teaches that the first 10% of your income belongs to God, so they give it. And then they give offerings to missions, and they give offerings to benevolence for those who are in need, and they give offerings to things like our building project, and they don't ever miss it because they believe that the sacrifice on the front end will pay dividends on the back end, that God's going to take care of them out of his riches and glory. Some of you, and I marvel at this, you decide not to go on vacation every year. You go on a missions trip. You sock money aside all year long so you can go build a church or an orphanage or share the gospel with an unreached people group. Sacrifice on the front end, blessing on the back end. God knows when we sacrifice that, that he can use us, that we're sold out, that we're bought into what he's doing. And sacrifice is a way that we can show God that we're serious, but also prepares our hearts to do the work that God has for us to do. You see, when you begin sacrificing in some way within your faith, you might say, well, that's a reason to, to get haughty or a reason to be prideful. No. When we sacrifice, what we're doing is we're preparing our hearts for the next work that God wants to do in us. And there's two more works that I want you to see that help point people to God through these four men. Look at page 255 in the story, or Daniel chapter 3, verse 8 and following. King Nebuchadnezzar has set up a golden idol, and he says, every time that the music plays, I need all of the royal officials or anyone else who's an earshot to bow down before that idol. That way I'll know that people are, are, belong to me, that they're in, that they're all set. Well, obviously, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they can't do this. And in chapter 3, we find out that their new names in Babylon are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or as my dad used to say, Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. But anyhow, there, there is, there's these three guys, and they belong to Yahweh God. They're Israelites. They still believe in the covenant. They've lost their land. They've lost their heritage. Their temple has been burned, but they won't bow down to this image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Let's look at the fallout. Chapter 3, verse 8, page 255 in the story. So, so this time some astrologers came forward, these were people who would have been in the court of the king, and they denounced the Jews. 
They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not will be thrown into the blazing, fiery furnace. But there are some Jews who you've set over the affairs of the province, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither worship your gods nor the image of gold that you have set up. So somebody goes and tattles. Because when the music was played and everybody was supposed to bow down, in essence, to show that they were loyal to the king, three guys stood there like this. There's a great Veggie Tales about this. Feel free to check it out on Netflix later this week. There's three vegetables alone in the crowd, right? So anyhow, they won't bow down. They refuse to do so. They know what the penalty will be. Nebuchadnezzar brings them before them, and obviously they found favor in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes because, because he gives them a second audience. He says, fellas, bow down, or I'm going to throw you in the blazing furnace. They said, Nebuchadnezzar, we can't. We hope our God will save us from that furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar orders them thrown into the furnace. It had been heated seven times hotter than usual. The people who threw them in perished immediately. But look at verse 24. After these three men were thrown in the furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar then leapt to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, guys, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. They're unbound and they're unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they did. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes weren't scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angels and rescued his servants. And from that day, Nebuchadnezzar sent out a decree, and he decreed that Yahweh God, you know, the God whose kingdom he destroyed, was now to be revered and respected within the kingdom. Now to be revered and respected within the kingdom. Did you notice what Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 26? He said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, the most high God. He didn't say the only God. Let's not make Nebuchadnezzar a convert. We can't do that sensibly at this point. What we can say is he knew that his gods couldn't do what those guys' gods could. I should say God could. He had seen something incredible that he'd never seen before, and he knew that Yahweh God, I am God, existence himself God, must be the most powerful God. How do we get to this point? Sometimes we get focused on the furnace, but what took place that God might prove himself so publicly? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pointed to God through abstinence. They abstained from bowing down. They abstained from doing what everybody else was doing. That's what sets this up. We can focus on the bravery of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we should. We, 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 we can focus on God's powerful hand to save them, and we should. We could focus on, was that an angel or Jesus himself in the fire? And we could focus on that. But what brings them to the point where God can prove himself faithful? They abstained from bowing down. 
they would not do what everybody else was doing. I don't know, with that blazing furnace in the periphery, if I could have done what they did. I would hope, but that's terrifying. I might have said something to God like this, God, I'm gonna be the last to bow down, and then I'll be the first to stand up. Cool? I think that's what I'm going to do because I'd rather not be thrown in there. God, I'm going to go ahead and do what everybody else is doing. I really don't want to stand out. I can serve you better if they think that I'm like them. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. And then you'll forgive me because you're merciful and gracious. That's what you told Moses. So we're going we're gonna to go that direction. God's not going to judge me. That's not what they do. They have true conviction that they can't bow down. You see, there's a difference between being holier than thou and feeling conviction. People who are holier than thou, they abstain from things so others will notice and so they can act like they're more spiritual than the people around them. The New Testament had a word for these people. They were called Pharisees, and Jesus is always in an argument with them. You can read that in the Gospels. He doesn't like people who abstain from things just so they can be seen. But God honors those who abstained from things because they have conviction. They have a conviction in their heart that if I do what everybody else is doing, I'm going to dirty up the name of my God. I can't be like everybody else because I have a conviction that I am a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen generation. Now we're coming home, right? I am that. Just like it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, just like it said of the Israelites back in Exodus, that's who I am, and therefore I can't dirty up the name of God. I must abstain. You say, Pastor Matt, well, that, that, that's great, and I'm glad that they did, and what a powerful story, and I'm glad that the people of that time learned that Yahweh God was, was a real God. In fact, there are people that have surmised that by the time the Israelites return to Egypt, there are going to be more God-fearing servants of Yahweh in Babylon than there ever is going to be in Israel again. I mean, God's name and his fame gets out there through what takes place in the book of Daniel. People start serving the Lord or come back to the Lord because of what's, what's going on here. But you might say, I can't see how that can work practically. Well, I want to share with you two stories real quick, and some of you have heard this before, but I'm going to have to ask a, a number of you who, who are going to enjoy these stories, please don't amen, please don't clap, uh, because I'm going to share stories, and they're going to seem like I'm trying to tell you I'm awesome, but I'm not. There, there's a, well, you might think I'm awesome, and if you do, thank you, but I'm not awesome. I want to share these stories with you today because there's a payoff here, and I want to tell you how this can work practically today. And many of you have heard this first story before. There's a lot of new people here who have never heard this before, so forgive me if this is the ninth time, especially if you came up in my young adult group. But I was 18 years old, and it was the very last night of high school, which some of you have found yourselves in just this past week. It was a major blowout party, a huge party at a friend of mine at Silver Lake. And I went over, and all through high school, I, I hadn't drank and I hadn't got high, but when I got to that party, that's what everybody was doing. But I didn't, and I had a good time anyways, and then... The time came later in the evening that one of my friends needed a ride home, and I'd had enough fun, so I said, hey, I'll give you a ride home. And as we were driving home that night, he looked at me and said, Skiff, I'm so proud of you. And I thought, what drunken thing is he going to say to me right now? He said, I'm so glad that you didn't drink tonight. And I said, really? He says, yeah, a bunch of us were talking before you got there tonight. And somebody said, I hope Skiff doesn't drink just because it's our last night with him. I said, well, thanks. 
See, I didn't know that anybody had ever noticed or paid attention. I thought that I just looked weird because I wasn't having fun like everybody else was having fun. There's a payoff here. I'll get to it, but one other story. Just two months before, I was away on a trip with the group that I was a part of. And it was the second night of our trip, and everybody was staying up late into the night, and everybody was having fun in one of the hotel rooms. And I got a little tired and decided I wanted to go to bed. So I went back to my room, and I got in my bed. And the next thing you know, I hear the door open, and I thought it was my roommate, but it wasn't. It was a young lady in the group who I was very close to. And she got in my bed, and she came so close to me that you couldn't have got floss between us. And I sat there for a moment, and I thought, oh, dear. This is the moment that my youth pastor warned me about. <laughs> Anybody who's been in our youth group in February, you know that CJ will warn you about this moment. He wasn't my youth pastor, but God bless him. I thought, oh gosh, Lord, help me. And I said, you need to get out of my bed and go back to your room. And she said, mm-mm. I said, well, that's the end of my strength. Lord, where's yours? And I said, you need to get out of my bed and go back to your room now. And she said, fine. And she stormed out. The next morning, she walked up to me, red in the face. And she said, I think I knew you wouldn't touch me. And she kissed me on the cheek and walked away. You say, all right, Pastor Matt, thank you. You've proved you're holier than thou. No, that's not the point. Let me give you the point of telling you these stories today because I have plenty in my life that I'm ashamed of. Plenty of things in my life where I'm sad I wasn't fully convicted about what was right and what was wrong. Plenty of things. But God in his providence knew that one day I would come home to be a pastor in the same town I grew up in. God knew that one day I would become a pastor five minutes from where I grew up. And that people would walk in the doors of my church that I went to school with. And that people would know that P Matt Skifstad is the pastor at this church right here. And you know what? There's nobody who can say on those two counts that I dirtied up the name of the Lord. That's why it matters. You say, Pastor Matt, that's not my testimony. That's not how I've lived. That, that, and I want to tell you, any, any story that you've lived to this point, God can redeem. Like I said, we're all sinners. We've all, we've all done things to dirty up his name. We've all done things we've regretted. That's not the point. The point is this. From today forward, are you going to operate in conviction and abstain from the things the Lord says no to? Because you never know the work that is waiting for you when you abstain. You never know what God has for you on the other side of abstaining from greed or immorality or slander or malice, all those things that the New Testament tells us not to get involved in. You never know what the Lord might do in and through you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew they had to abstain and look at what the Lord is able to accomplish. Now, I'm not preaching abstain today so that you can be holier than thou. Get that prideful nonsense out your brain. You abstain because the Lord says no. And you operate in conviction because, not so you can be awesome, but because you know he has work for you to do in the future. One more quick story, the most famous from Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. Page 258 in the story, chapter 6, verse 10. A new king comes to the throne, the king of the Persians and the Medes. 
Daniel is an old man by now, but works his way up into the good graces of the king, and the king is tricked into issuing a decree that no one may pray to any god but him or his gods, or they have to be thrown into the lion's den. And this is what Daniel does in chapter 6, verse 10, page 258 of the story. When Daniel learned that this decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he'd done before. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went back to the king. And they said, King, Daniel's still praying. And the king went, No. I decree that he has to go in the lion's den. And so they take him there. Verse 16, page 259 in the story. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. Look at verse 19. At light of first dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, I don't know about you, but I would hope that there was a pregnant pause right here. And Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den, and when Daniel was lifted out, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. You say, how did we get here? Well, Daniel pointed to God through modeling. He modeled his faith day in and day out. Look at these verses. Look at verse 16. It says, may your God whom you serve continually... Look at verse 20. Taz your God, whom you serve continually. Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 10. When Daniel hears that the decree has been made, he goes home like he always does, opens the windows, and begins to pray. They knew where to find him. They knew how to find him. They knew where he was and what he'd be doing so that they could trap him into getting thrown into this lion's den. Daniel modeled his faith, whom you serve continually, whom you serve continually, an open window policy into his faith. You see, there are people who sacrifice before the Lord, and that's private. God, God says through Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, if you give great big offerings, don't tell the whole world. If you fast, don't, don't tell everybody. If, if, you, if you pray, don't, don't pray loud, long prayers so people can think you're awesome. Don't sacrifice to be seen. And, and, and in the case of abstaining, the, the abs, a, abstaining is not so people would, would look at somebody and go, hey, look at him, he doesn't do that. Why is he so weird? He must be God's. That's not the way it works. But in this particular case, Daniel's faith is seen as regular and normal and just who he was. May your God whom you serve continually and an open window policy when he prayed. People knew that Daniel belonged to Yahweh God. I am God. Existence himself. People knew the one that Daniel belonged to. 
And I want you to see the progression of what happens in this story. The first thing that happens is they sacrifice and they become key officials. The second thing that happens is they abstain and God is made one among the pantheon of Babylonian gods. God is given license to be talked about within the kingdom of Babylon. But the third thing that takes place when Daniel models his prayer life, when Daniel models that he still serves God regardless of the decree, and you can read this on the next page of the story or in the next page of your Bible, the king of the Persian Empire writes a psalm of praise to the one true God and publishes it for the entire kingdom to read. Do you see the progression that takes place here in this story? It goes from God's people gain influence and are given position to serve him. God's people have an opportunity to show his power and his might. God's people have the opportunity to show his power and his might and his oneness, the fact that there is no one like him. The progression goes from we have influence to God is recognized and known to God is supreme. So I ask you today, are you modeling your faith? Is there an open window policy in your life? Is your faith personal and private or is it public and pointing? I'm not asking you to be weird or strange or different. I'm asking, do people know why you go to church, that you go to church, what you do here, and who you think God is? I'm not asking you to preach. I'm not telling you to go out and proclaim with your voice. I'm asking, are you just open? How does the king know that Daniel serves him continually? Did Daniel have a pulpit in the throne room? Doubtful. But Daniel just must have been open and talked about the God he served when the opportunity presented itself. Not in a preachy way, but in a way that made people know that he was sincere. The king is anguished of heart because he recognized the sincerity of Daniel's faith. And he didn't want him to die because he knew that Daniel was a good guy and that his faith is what sustained him. You know, we just read a couple of verses here this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2 where it says you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We are, the, we are the same as the Israelites of old. We're to be pointing people to Jesus who can rewrite every life story. You know what else it says in that chapter? Verse 11 and 12. It says, live such good lives among the non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing evil, they may see your good works and may glorify God on the day that he visits us. Model out your faith. Live such good lives among the non-Christians that even though your sacrifice or your abstaining or your modeling might be ridiculed, might be taken the wrong way, might be seen as something that is haughty or prideful, maybe will make you a pariah within your own family or neighborhood, that though they accuse you of doing evil, 
they might see your good deeds and glorify the one true God on the day that he returns. That's our call. That's our call. Do you have an open window policy into your faith today? Are you modeling Christianity to your friends and your neighbors? You say, Pastor Matt, I don't need to do that. I'm not a pastor. No, you're not. You're a priest. You shepherd and pull people towards God. Pastor's jobs are to keep them safe and within the bounds. Your job is to say, come on in and get to know the God of the universe. No, you're not a pastor. You're a priest. Will you sacrifice? Will you abstain with conviction when God says no? And will you model your faith in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace? Let us point people to Jesus who's rewritten every story. Let's pray. Jesus, you modeled these things so plainly to us. You sacrificed, you abstained, you modeled, you showed us what it means to serve God with a full heart and allow him to do more in and through us than we could ever imagine. We have somebody who's shown us the way. We have great people of faith like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who trusted in you, who had courage. But their trust and their courage was a result of seeing you tried and proved again and again. Those men who stood up in the furnace knew they could because somehow on a restricted diet they were healthy and hale. Those men who came through the furnace pointed to you as the one true God, the most high God. That man who came through the den, he was known for his faith, and you were made known through it. God, we want to make you known. We want to always preach and proclaim your gospel, and when necessary, use words. three ideas in the sermon presented today, three things to think about. And everybody's probably touched by a different thing, and with that said, I want to just open a time of prayer for us for just a few minutes. If you're new here today, at the end of each service, we have a commitment time, a time when we can ask God, God, what are you saying to me specifically? What do you want to do in and through me? Would you ask that question today of the Lord? God, is there a sacrifice you've been calling me to make that I've ignored? Is there something you're convicting my heart about that I keep saying no? Or am I just too closed in my faith? Can you help me to be open about who you are and what you've done in my life?
Would you ask those questions of the Lord today? This is, this is a time for you and him to have a conversation. Ask him what he's speaking to you and what he wants you to do. Let's pray for a few minutes this morning.